Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 255. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. I hope you digested all that turkey dinner and you got yourself a rest. Because the holidays are here and the news, politics, and global security issues are not taking a break. And this holiday season is definitely a time to stay vigilant. President, when will the first American hostages be released since none were included today? We don't know when that will occur, but we're going to be expected to occur. And uh, we don't know what the list of all the hostages are and when they'll be released, but we know the numbers they are going to be released. So it's my hope and expectation will be soon. And of the 10 Americans that are unaccounted for, do you know all of their conditions? Are they all alive? We don't know all their conditions. Mr. President, there are members of your party who would like to see conditions placed on aid to Israel. What is your view on that? They would like to see, uh, you know, a reduction of the bombing. Well, I think that's a, 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 a worthwhile thought, but I don't think if I started off with that, we'd ever gotten to where we are today. Mr. We have President, to take this a piece at a time. Mr. President, do you trust Hamas to I don't trust Hamas to do anything right. I only trust Hamas to respond to pressure. Yeah, I got the elves on the shelves. I got the kids asking me constantly about what Santa's going to bring. And we've got a constant assault of news from Ukraine to Gaza to here in the United States and especially out of Washington. But before Santa generously puts gifts underneath the trees for all you good little boys and girls, I'm going to deliver a couple weeks of content to help you stay informed, stay connected, stay ahead of the news, and stay vigilant. I hope you enjoyed our Thanksgiving special replay of my conversation with Chuck D. It was a great change of pace. And now that we're back from Thanksgiving, we're going to break it down hard with the kind of content you've come to expect from independent Americans. 
We're always talking about the intersection of politics, national security, and culture. And I try to leverage my relationships across the defense community especially to bring you insights that you might not hear anywhere else. And throughout the last couple of years, we've stayed on top of all the domestic and international security threats, from Putin to Hamas to domestic extremists here in the U.S., And our guest in this episode is going to take us through all of it with a very unique, powerful, and authentic perspective. He's an expert on urban combat, which is going to dominate the combat landscape for the next generation and maybe more. It's what we've seen in Iraq. It's what we've seen in Syria. It's what we've seen in Ukraine. It's what we're seeing in Gaza. And we could see in numerous other places in the years to come. But this guest isn't just some kind of academic egghead who's been sitting behind a desk for the last 20 years. He's been there and done that. He started out in the Army as a private and went all the way up through the ranks from being a ranger instructor to being a platoon leader in Iraq on multiple tours to teaching at West Point. He's chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute. He's the author of Understanding Urban Warfare. He's a host of his own podcast. He's been a professor at West Point, and he's becoming much more regular in the media and is extremely prolific on social media, including a breakout moment when the invasion of Ukraine began. He's also a humble, thoughtful, experienced father of three kids who came back from Ukraine just two weeks ago. He's a leader meeting the moment who will help us understand what's happening now and what could happen next. From the battlefields of Ukraine, to the streets of Gaza, to the tree lighting ceremony here in New York City tonight at Rockefeller Center. The threats are everywhere, but we're going to break it down with authenticity, without the spin, and with real facts and experience. It's the kind of conversation you can't have on cable news, but you can have on a podcast. I want to remind you, if you've never seen this show, we also post video of every episode on our YouTube channel. It's linked in the show notes and also at independentamericans.us. And here it is, my conversation with one of the world's leading authorities on urban warfare, Major John Spencer. Sorry to sober your holiday spirit, but we're going to keep it real here at Independent Americans. And we're going to bring you the ground truth now and always. And bring you a special holiday delivery of the five eyes from Righteous Media that will always keep you true and honest. Independence information, integrity, inspiration, and impact. Welcome to a conversation about the warfare that's happening around the world right now. It's not taking a break for the holidays. Welcome to a conversation about urban combat. Welcome to a conversation about the future of modern warfare. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 255. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, I hope you all had a restful Thanksgiving because the holidays are here and so is the news, especially national security and global security related. And there's going to be no holiday break for all the issues that we cover on a regular basis and try to continue to bring you experts who can take you deeper with independent analysis and authentic perspective. And we are very blessed to be joined by a guy who I've respected for for a long time now. I've been eager to have on the show. Uh, The great and powerful John Spencer is finally joining us on Independent Americans. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, brother. Big fan. Um, It's great to have you here. You are a man of the moment. You've kind of risen 
to this moment. And I want to get into Ukraine. I want to get into Israel. Uh, in the intro, I explain everybody, you know, you chair the Urban Warfare Studies Institute. You're an author, you're a podcaster, but you're really an expert on the warfare that's happening around large parts of the world. Um, so it's really, really great to have you here. I'll start with the question I ask everybody. Where are you, John, and how are you? I'm in Colorado, and, and I'm doing well. I mean, uh, both personally and professionally, life is good. What's it? So for, you burst on the scene like in the early days of the, the Russian invasion. I remember you popping up and, and you basically saying, hey, if you're in Ukraine and you want to fight the Russians, here's some tactical tips. It was almost like, you know, it was like a, a Red Dawn moment. Like if you're going to be a part of the Wolverines, here's some tips and tricks on how to kill bad guys, right? And, and protect yourself and your communities. Can you talk about that, how that unfolded and, and, sure. and how you were kind of thrust into that moment, especially leveraging social media, which is a part of this dialogue and discussion. But can you talk about that that moment and, and the days since, John? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that was a good a good capture of what happened. You know, I was I had already been studying urban warfare academically. You know, I had a long career in the army and then was teaching at West Point. I taught strategy and other things and started this research center and started writing about urban warfare. And I had been doing that for a while. And then the Ukraine war, which I had been following uh, academically as part of the Modern War Institute. And I saw the Russian invasion happening. We all saw what was happening, even uh, militarily what was happening. But then I saw Ukraine issuing out guidance to their people to basically go out and resist. And the messages that I was getting was that it literally was a radio, like free, free Ukraine radio saying, go out and resist. Um, not only that the martial law was instilled, but and that was pretty much the extent of their guidance to their people. Um, and I was already on Twitter, which is now X. So I put together a, a little thread. And I'm like, look, I, I've been studying urban warfare specifically for a while. And if you're going to go out and resist, here, here's some tips to follow. And because of my affiliation, it had to be like, if John Spencer was in a city somewhere, these are the things that I would do. And it was a seven tweet thread. And I didn't expect that that would even, you know, anybody would be listening, but that thread went viral, like 20 million people, while I could still track it, saw that tweet thread. Uh, so I, I did a couple more with like little wire diagram or like little cartoonish figures, like do this, not this, or check in an X. Well, that that went viral as well. And then all of a sudden, somebody asked me to take those few tweets and put it into a PDF. And I did that. And then all of a sudden, the Ukrainian government took my PDF and issued it out uh, across their Ministry of Defense for resistors. Um, it later became a manual, a mini manual for the Urban Defender, which is a pun off of an earlier book. Um, that was basically like literally, if, if you're in the military, like this is all common sense. It is, but even our military forgets, unfortunately, some of the lessons that we learned. So I literally just took pictures out of doctrine and and and, and things that I had studied. I actually written an article right before the war on looking at urban battles across time, what are the defensive tactics like snipers and, and, and uh, strong points and things like this. I'd written that literally in December of, of 2021. I mean, I took some of that. Well, the manual's now in 14 different languages. Uh, Ukraine printed off hundreds of thousands of them. It was seen across the country, uh, which is really humbling for me is that, you know, you know a guy who you know, had a humble bring, upbringing in the military and I produced something that hundreds of thousands of people in Ukraine use to defend themselves. Doesn't matter what side you you believe should have been 
you know, all the, the politics to it. And then I found out that there's all kinds of people around the world who had this ideal, this red dawn. I think it's really appropriate ideal that, like, hey, we're going to all rise up. I'm like, oh, okay, well, there's a couple of things that Red Dawn got wrong, like like veterans, um, which is what happened in Ukraine, who stood up and said, follow me, which mm-hmm. is – but there are some basics to fighting in urban terrain that's very unique. And if you're a defender, you can really cause havoc on even a the biggest military in the world or what was on paper, the second most powerful. So now it's in 14 different languages, and it, I never profited from it. It's out there for everybody. Um, it's analogous to many other books, but that concept of Red Dawn is is actually pretty ancient. Yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, good things can still happen on Twitter or X. And I think your emergence is a good example of that. But, you know, I was in the Army at some of the same times you were, and we all remember going through the infantry schoolhouse and having the 7-8 that I still have on the bookcase in my house. And if I, you know, it's been updated, but if I was going to sit down and train my neighbors, I'd pull out the 7-8 and start training the trainers in the same kind of ways that we were taught at Fort Benning and, and other places across the military. Um, can you talk, John, like w- specifically, right? Like, And this is what I want to ask you to do throughout our conversation, right? Like specifically, in, when you put that information out, this was a time when like old ladies were throwing soup cans at drones and, you know, the, the, the forces were still coming together. The, the, the country hadn't really been mobilized. Were there one or two specific tactics that you saw as most popular or most useful to the Ukrainians in those in those early days? Absolutely. And I, and I agree on 7-8. I just want to. So I, I was a ranger instructor, so I definitely was relying on things like the ranger handbook and you know concepts that are simple, although that manual itself is it's it has a, an ideal above itself. Like you, you carry it around. It has all the information you need. Uh, so yes, absolutely. There are things that I um, put into the manual or into a tweet that was, you could see immediate transition, like the fact of blocking every road, every alleyway, every house, everything. And then being very specific, like go out and park a bus in the road. Because uh, interestingly, you know, Ukrainian is also, if you give somebody a simple idea, they'll run with it. So they started putting up, somebody in Ukraine told them to put up uh, these hedgehogs like the D-Day hedgehogs from the beaches um, that were supposed to stop the landing craft from revolving. So somebody told them to do that and they put them everywhere. It's in my basically like X's of of wood, right? Or whatever you can pull together. Corrugated steel. Corrugated Uh, steel, right? If you go to Ukraine now, almost two years later, you'll see the thousands of them everywhere to make, to slow the military down. So this is the thing in war. Sometimes the military needs, just needs to get somewhere like to the center of a capital city uh, so one of, that was the, one of the biggest things that immediately took fire. And if you've ever served in the U.S. military, you remember from Iraq or Afghanistan, even putting up traffic control points, S patterns, uh, that went viral. As it, and if you're in the military, like everybody knows that, like, no, actually, nobody, they didn't. Uh, they didn't know if they just went out and parked their cars in the road, it would slow down a force. Also might cause the force to have to get out of the vehicle. Then you can shoot at them. Uh, so those elements of of creating uh, obstacles, so obstacle belts, really um, had a massive impact that I didn't I didn't even think it it would. But that was one of the things um, that and the use of concrete, right? Like use your environment around you, right? So in like Red Dawn, you know, they went into the wood line and, and did ambushes and things like that. But if you're in an urban environment, there's lots of stuff that can really be an advantage to a defender. Like vehicles, like if you park a dump truck, which we could talk about domestically in, in somebody's way, 
it works. It doesn't matter if you have a tank or whatever, it will slow them down, if not stop them. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we even saw this most immediately when there was uh, this incident on the border, the U.S.-Canada border. You know, initially there was speculation that maybe it was some kind of a terrorist attack. And I was commenting early, early in the meeting. I said, look, here's what I, what I can tell you is the barrier worked. Right. Like the concrete barrier worked, the HESCO barrier worked, that checkpoint worked. And any of us who've been on checkpoints can relate to having that kind of uh, of of a formidable defense from just stopping things from coming through. But you really I think you really tapped into something, which is this this calling that was happening across Ukraine. And people said, you know, give me the tools. And we've seen that throughout the war where they've been entrepreneurial and they've been innovative uh, in in a way that we really haven't seen maybe since World War Two. And can I ask you? Again, John, given your expertise, I think that the, the combat kind of gets de- gets sanitized a bit, right? Or maybe it feels a little redundant to people in the states. But from what from the way I view it, you know, this looks like some of the most brutal combat we've seen since World War II. The closeness of it, the brutality of it, um, the the carnage of it. But you, you know, you were there two weeks ago, right? You just got back recently. Can you break down like in, in, in a bit more intimate detail? Because I think only folks who maybe are scouring the internet for GoPro videos understand uh, the intimacy and 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 the scope of the fighting. But can you frame it up for us and, and explain the, the 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 fighting that you've seen and the fighting that continues in Iraq in in Ukraine right now? Sure. Uh, so the problem with it is that Ukraine war has gone on so long that people can point to it to do confirmation bias, especially about warfare as a kind of an, a student of warfare, where you have to really look at it through its different transitions, right? It started off with this very rapid advance surprise, although it shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody, but it was a surprise to many people in the country attack to where literally you woke up and there is a Russian in your street outside your house. Uh, and that was the the closeness of the fight because um, the Russians did rapidly advance into their objectives all across the country. To where uh, everything I've studied is like the bomb started on February 24th, 2022, and then Russians were there within hours later because uh, there was really there weren't a lot of defenses or where they thought the Russians would actually come across. So that level of closeness in in, in the early moments of the war, the, the, the first, you know, from basically February to April when the Russians pulled out of many areas when they got they couldn't achieve their goals and they were uh, the Ukrainian citizens mostly defended their terrain so well that um but that was a lot of very ugly fighting a lot of massacres uh where the russians were frustrated they couldn't do as they took it out on the civilians um that was i i, I can't it's more analogous to world war ii but even then it's it was almost a mixture of of new western way of warfare rapid advance seized terrain and populations rapidly but then like this very asymmetric fighting back of civilians and military mixed together. Although they're marking themselves, which is really interesting part of the war. And then you saw the war transitioning to where the Russians pull out. um, And then they try to, they start building defenses. There's a couple of moments where the Ukrainians use like everything they got to to take advantage of a couple of openings in places like Kherson and Kharkiv. But then the war starts to evolve into this trench warfare that we've seen. But trench warfare that nobody has seen since World War II, right? This is the scale of there's some there's some pitched battles, right? I'm an, I'm a one-trick pony as well of urban warfare, like city fights. So I've been studying the city fights, but since I go so much, I that, that was my fourth research trip. I of course 
learn about all the phases of the operation. Really, you're taking a military of 100,000 and, and mobilizing it to a million people in less than a year uh, is also very unique and very War II-esque. Uh, and then all the challenges of, of that fighting a Russian force that just keeps coming and keeps coming. And they've gone through their mobilizations as well during this war. Where we've seen moments where nobody has seen since battles of World War II, where tens of thousands of artillery rounds raining down on forces. But that, you know, in the beginning of the war, it was this very intermix where populations and militaries were stuck together because there was no time to get anybody out that you saw a lot of the, that close fighting. And then you saw pitched battles over cities like Bakhmut and others that are another phase of warfare. And then you saw kind of the, the line start to solidify as both sides needed time to build mass to where you see these pitched battles of trench warfare without air power, which is a lot of the reason if you're military, you, you, you think that this is the future of warfare, but yes, and neither side had the ability to, to put air power up, which is a, a very significant part of even World War II, uh, which has driven to what we're seeing now, which is you know just hundreds of miles of trenches and, and multiple lines of defensive lines that Ukraine is trying to break through and Russia is trying to hold, to hold on to what it was able to take. Uh, and, and Ukraine, and, and not a stalemate, but it's a very, I'm not a fan of people trying to generalize an entire war. It's like, okay, that's maneuver warfare, that's attrition warfare. Uh, but we've seen it all really in Ukraine is the challenge of, we've seen the close like house to house fighting uh, to, we've seen the large tank battles. We've seen the uh, massive amounts of artillery barrages daily for for weeks and weeks on end, where soldiers are getting shell shock and getting all the signs of past warfare, uh, and and what it takes to keep an army fielded like this, um, and the sacrifices that it's taking to continue the war, and and what that means in the translation. But right now, that trench warfare and trying to do breakthroughs is this is constant day to day. Where we see fielding of new technologies that because war is an evolution, right? Uh, the, the nature of war doesn't change, but the character of it. And the problem with Ukraine war is, is everybody, you know, one, everybody's an expert. Um, two, everybody is picking what they want to pick from the war um, to make either reinforce what they were already doing, a cognitive bias, or to state the what the future is or what should be. So it's it's very challenging. So when I go there now, I, you know, I'm trying to study what happened in the past. I have an understanding of what's happening at the moment. And I, I do a lot of meetings with high level Ukrainian officials, but I'm really trying to piece together like what happened in some of these really am amazing, unique battles, like the battle of Kiev when they defended their city or the battle of, of Mariupol when just a few thousand, like a Thermopylae moment um, that we, you know, that really can drive ideals about what it means to be a warrior and things like that. I'm I'm now trying to focus in on what happened rather than what is happening. So John, I'm I'm you have uh intimate understanding as a teacher, as a practitioner, you were, you know, platoon leader in Iraq, right? Multiple deployments. You started as a private and have gone all the way up to major through the ranks. You've been around the world and I I think it's important for Americans to understand the intensity and scope of the fighting that we've seen is so many times 
multiple higher than anything we saw in Iraq or Afghanistan on the American side, right? I mean, the, the combat experience, the depth and dynamism of their experience is so extensive right now. It, it seems like the Ukrainian military might be the most battle-tested military on the planet right now, right? In, in, the, in the scope of things that they're doing. But let me ask you to do something really hard, which is pr project what happens next. Predict what happens next. We're in for the winter. Um, there is some um, some weakness in Washington in, in their ability to support Ukraine. I and you and many of others have been banging on the drum saying now is the time to double down. And I've been very critical of the kind of mother may I approach that the Biden administration has taken uh, to Zelensky in Ukraine. And, and this feels like you know, every winter is going to be pivotal, but this may be the most pivotal one because there seems to be um, an endurance on the side of the Russians where they have a disregard for the loss of casualties. You know, they're, they're counting on America to lose its, its, its domestic support for the war at a time when, frankly, we didn't support our own wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So to think Americans are going to support Ukraine long term is, is tough. But break it down for us. How do you see the winter unfolding? And, you know, where are the Ukrainians? Is it a stalemate? I know it's difficult to summarize and explain, but but what do you expect to see over the course of this winter and into the spring where potentially we're seeing F-16s come online? We've seen MRAPs come online. We're seeing Abrams tanks come online. Is it going to move the needle or, or where do you expect us to, to be six months from now? Yeah. So now you're tapping into not my soul of the earth, old soldier background. You're, you're tapping into the kind of the, the political aspects, you know, all what I taught in strategy and my time in the Pentagon and understanding the the politics of war. All war is politics. Uh, but there's also some theories that we all use to try to make people understand the war. Right. Even if it's a you know a dead Chinese guy that actually never existed, like Sun Tzu, uh, you, you try to use that to understand what's going on in the world, like the fact that. Ukraine's strength is, of course, its will to fight. The fact that, and that's what Ukraine did, right? Whether you believe on on either side, you can't take from Ukraine that they fought for their freedom. And from February 24th, 2022 till now, um, they're willing to fight for their freedom, whether you believe in them or not. We got to give them respect as a warrior class. And that's what I experienced and two weeks, you know, basically two weeks after the Russians were defeated in Kiev, I was on the ground and I was amazed just at that purity of and something I hadn't experienced in 30 years of uh, 30 years of war is that an entire people said, not today, Putin, not on my block. Like I, we're, and it's actually unique is usually a population will cower to power. And this is like an entire people said, no, uh, whether you believe the government is corrupt and all these things, blah, blah, blah. You can't take from them grandmothers, grandfathers, um, young men and women who fought Russians to in their neighborhoods, on their blocks, all of that. So that translates to where you think this is going. Yes, all war is politics and your allies matter most. You know, Sun Tzu was right in why people use it in business as much as they do war is that you know, don't attack your enemy where he wants you to. Don't attack them face to face at their strength, which is for Russia, is their military mobilization, all that stuff, um, attack their allies or attack their strategy. So, of course, Russia is doubling down on its goals and, and wants to attack us, the U.S., as in our willingness to continue to support Ukraine's fight for their own freedom. Will Ukraine fight if the U.S. just, for some political reason, which would be unfortunate and wrong, 
just to say, okay, we're done. We're going to you know, fun, cut funding, all these different things that you hear. Ukraine will still fight. Uh, you know, how much success they'll have, it, it doesn't depend on what material they have to fight. They have enough fighters, right? Uh, that's not the problem. And, and Europe is actually coming to the table and, and actually starting to commit more resources than the U.S. Has ever has, which is really fascinating to watch as an outsider. You know, militarily, where does it go six months from now, right? This is the idea that you could have anybody who could tell you that um, you should probably stop listening to them. Mm. Uh, I can tell you that six months from now, Ukrainians will continue to fight. Uh, I can't tell you what Russia does domestically or, or whatever, and they're doubling down to hold what we have. I can talk to you about the cost of not supporting Ukraine. And this is where even in the U.S., we have problems understanding geopolitics or understanding what it means to allow Putin, even if you didn't care about a single Ukrainian, what it means to allow Putin to seize a country by force because they are bigger and have nuclear weapons, and what that would mean to the entire geo, you know, global international order that people hear about, they don't know what it means, is that it would really upset all that we live under. Like all the all of our 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 economic vitality our position on the global stage, everything, it would change when when we say, okay, Putin, he it's his, he can take it, sovereign borders, that doesn't matter, uh, you know, freedom, de- self-determination, democracy, all that. It doesn't matter, right? That's that's not our fight. We don't have a dog in that fight. Like, well, you, you're about as wrong as you can be if you think there's no dog in a fight for the US in protecting the global international order where anybody with a nuclear weapon can go take any country that doesn't. Uh, and the and the second and third order effects of how much more war that's going to cause. Yes, the U.S. has dribbled resources into Ukraine. Um, we have to make a decision on who we want to win, and not even Ukraine or or Russia. Do we want this ideal of nation states, this ideal of uh, rules to the law of war? Um, since Russia has really used. Every has broken every law of war that we've ever that was ever created uh, on who you target, what you do, how you hold the military accountable. Uh, really, we the U.S. have to make a decision on what we want the future of the world to look like. And yes, because we're the only superpower in the world, we have to make that decision. In six months from now, I, yes, the Ukraine-Russia war will probably be still happening six months from now, um, and that's in part our fault because we dribbled stuff into Ukraine for them to defend themselves. When we could have dealt, you know, went in much more rather than giving four artillery pieces in the beginning, four pieces of this, when they need hundreds and hundreds. And yes, there's 50 people, 50 countries that are saying, I will support you. But there is a, a, a both a science and an art to military tactics. So, yes, if you give them 30 tanks and that's all you give them, they'll do some stuff with that. But they won't win a war with that when Russia has more capability. Uh, but they don't have the will to fight, right? They're fighting with privates, basically, Mobics on many levels. So will there be a major breakthrough in the, during this winter? Uh, with the current resources that Ukraine has, unlikely, but you can never... <laughs> I've actually never have been surprised at what, what Ukraine has done with what it's got. Uh, and I think many people should take notice. But again, uh, this war is continuing because of our... We haven't made a decision on what we want the world to look like because of our own domestic political political problems. John, you, you lay it all out well, and and you know, obviously, 
in the absence of a game changer, Putin dies, you know, Zelensky's killed, Putin uses nukes, like without some kind of a radical change, you know, you can see it kind of being a slow slog over the next six months. But I want to ask you a question, going back to our Wolverines and, and Red Dawn, of course, the first Red Dawn, not the remake, which, you know, we got to pay homage to the proper one here, right? The second one's a totally different thing. But, you know, if I were in Ukraine and I were fighting this battle, it would be really hard to stop me and a bunch of guys from hitting inside Russia. How do you think the discipline we've seen across the board on their strategic communications, on their intel, on their political messaging, I think has really been extraordinary? Isn't a reflection of that unity across the country? And, and a lot of it, I, I think you have to give credit to Zelensky's masterful leadership. But, but, but kind of a straight up question, how have they stopped Ukrainians from blowing stuff up in Moscow? I mean, we see it in Gaza. We see it in other parts of the world. We've seen it here in the U.S. How have they been able to hold back you know, really pissed off small groups of Ukrainians who want to infiltrate and blow up the Kremlin or other strategic targets inside of Russia. What do you attribute that restraint to? And obviously it's helped keep the world on their side more, which is a strategic advantage, but it's also an incredible amount of discipline, right? Yeah, no, it is. And it's unique as you look back and there's some uniqueness. I think we'll talk about Israel too. It's some uniqueness is that this is, has been a test of the global international order, right? So Ukraine was defending itself literally from um, massacres and genocide. And I mean, we don't even talk about the babies that have been kidnapped from Ukraine and taken back into Russia and never will know that they were ever Ukrainian. Yeah. Uh, and literally the, the International Criminal Court has a arrest warrant for Putin out for stealing babies from Ukraine. Um, but, and this is getting to the ridiculousness of the, the actual politics of war that we, the West, not just the United States, said, okay, Ukraine, we support you, but we don't support if you if you hit Russia with what anything we're giving you. Nothing. I'm, literally, a country invaded you and is committing genocide on you, but hey, keep it on your side of the uh, of the sovereign border even that we recognize, right. which has been ridiculous. Now, Ukraine is, has self-determination, but it has to make a calculated, it has to adhere to the politics of war as well. Like, if we do this, if we if we strike in kind to Russia, then we may not get these deliveries of weapons. And that's literally where it's been. Although they have done some insane things um, with plausible deniability, which you got to give them respect. Like, I don't know how that that strategic bomber worth a billion dollars just blew up in in Russia. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how those drones are hitting Moscow. Um, that's not us. Uh, they have loosened that attribution up, but it's insane. I understand the politics of it, though, that we have, we, the West, and, it, and all the supporters said, you know, look, I know they're committing genocide. I know that we've all validated that they've massacred civilians and that they're they're uh, um, not following any law of war or anything. But, hey, don't you don't dare. Don't you strike over there. And anytime it's happened, there's been like crazy international condemnation because of the fear. Right. This is, again, we Americans have to decide whether we're going to cower to fear. Right, I understand the concern of of, of global nuclear war, uh, but I also understand the price you pay for appeasement. Right, we should have learned in history, and we actually have. And I think we're lacking some of the moral leadership that we had in those days, like in World War One and World War Two. Going like, look, I understand the politics of this, but but not on my watch. Not on my watch. Are you going to do these things um, to a people, to a nation, anything just because you have? 
um, you keep rattling your nuclear saber, uh, which is the evolution of nuclear. So people don't recognize too that this is this is also the test of the world since the the creation of nuclear weapons, right? Just because you have a nuclear weapon, does that mean that you can do anything you want to a member to your your part your nations that aren't a part of this defensive alliance that we created to prevent this type of war? This is a test, and I think people don't recognize who want to be isolationists. Like, hey, that's not our that's not our fight. Hey, you know, do you want the America to be nuked? Nuked? Like, one, you don't even understand how this works. But this is you don't understand. This is a test of the future, and if if we don't take a stand as a country. Uh, to say, hey, look, I don't, no. Uh, yeah. Sometimes you have to. Your inaction causes greater death and chaos than actual action, uh, and this has been a test. Yeah, I think I think it's an important point that doesn't get pulled out enough, frankly, in these snippets when you're on cable news or I'm on cable news or even the more thoughtful stuff going on. I mean, I think this is a really, really critical point. Like the incredible restraint on the part of Ukraine in not hitting Russia, often behind their lines, in their backyard, at a time when we're holding them to a different standard. Because no one's telling Israel, hey, don't hit Gaza, don't hit Hamas, right? And and there is obviously a backlash, and, and some will say that, that Israel has gone in too hard, they haven't been strategic enough, but there really is two sets of standards here, right? We're, we're telling Ukraine, hey, you know, watch out for even even strategic logistical targets inside of, of Moscow. And, and I, I don't know if they, if I were them, I wouldn't do it, right? Like living not far from ground zero, being here after 9-11, if you would have told America, we're not hitting back, they would have told you to go fuck yourself, right? And it's amazing that the Ukrainians have been so strategically uh, focused and, and, you know, it's a chess match and, and they are playing the long game in ways on the public support side that, you know, parallels Putin's long game, which now overflows into Hamas, overflows into Israel. Let me, let's take it over there, John. And, and you've been really thoughtful and generous in helping us break this down. But let me ask you, I've seen you on TV. I've been on TV. Others are on TV. Can you talk about, Put yourself in, in, in the boots of a 22-year-old IDF soldier, right? We talked to Eli Elephant on this show a couple of weeks ago. He was in Israel. He's an IDF commando veteran. Um, he was talking about the, the landscape there. But but in the boots, of because we're not seeing it, right? There's very little embeds. The, the Israelis are keeping it really tight. We're seeing videos spread around of civilian casualties, but you're not really, it's not like the Blitzkrieg in the early days of the Iraq war where Wolf Blitzer is riding on a Bradley, right? I mean- They've kept this pretty tight. Can you describe for people the intimacy of the type of urban combat that 22-year-old IDF soldier is, is dealing with right now? Yeah, uh, that's a challenge, of course. But I mean, this is, again, why I have job security is just the fact that nobody focuses on this and, and we just relearn lessons over and over again. So for the IDF, you know, a, a very unique military and having the honor to have spent a lot of time with them. It's it's really complex on who are their who's in their force who are their leaders the fact that home it, you can see your house um, behind you uh, it, it's it, it, but you can see the rockets going past you um, so I think it's one that's the biggest thing right now that I think people no matter what the message continue to not even acknowledge like if I'm a 22 year old sol- IDF soldier in Gaza at the moment for the last six weeks now. I've had to watch rockets coming out of Gaza headed towards my house, headed and not towards a military target. Like none of them are headed toward a military target. They're all headed towards Israeli civilian sites. And no matter what, 
the the narrative that you and I have been talking about on the news, you know, the fact that 2000 rockets got launched on October 7th and there have been thousands, over 10,000 ro- indiscriminate rockets come out of Gaza headed towards my house. Um, people kind of discount. So, but that soldier, especially if he's um, one of those frontline troops, right? As you and I know, there's there's over 300,000 plus troops uh, supporting the operation in Gaza at the moment. But let's say, break that down to 50,000 or so um, in close combat. So this is the combat in hell is what we call it for lots of reasons. All combat is hard. All combat is hell, but urban combat. And in Gaza, where literally there's a city under a city, we have never faced that, the, the U.S. military. I can't I can't point in history where we faced that level of complexity in an urban environment. Of course, in all of our past battles, there has been, you know, whether it's Fallujah, Mosul, Raqqa, all these other ones, there have been undergrounds. But nothing like this, like a hundreds of miles of underground where the, the enemy is under there like of rats, and you don't know where they're going to come up. So yes, in in a twenty two year old soldier that's looking at a you know an eight story building and he's surrounded by buildings which every one of them could be a sniper hole, but also has this psychological thing like they're under me, um, and not and, and and that being a potential thing that they could pop up any direction. Uh, usually, as you and I know, like if this is why urban warfare is so hard. Usually, if I if I move forward, everything behind me is clear. I can kind of not. Not in the urban terrain, right? Especially not in Gaza. You move forward and you still have a 360-degree, three-dimensional threat that could kill you at any moment. Uh, it, it's insane that the level of, you know, the, the drain it would take. And right now we can talk about they've basically been stuck in place. But under that cognitive awareness that any threat could come from any direction at any moment, uh, and and you and I know it. Like you have to have a sense of control. So that soldier watching rockets coming out coming out of Gaza, headed towards home, fighting for the people to his left and right, with a with an enemy that we know doesn't follow any rules of the law of war. Not even the honor rule, right? So just honor between enemies. We know that Hamas doesn't even follow that that principle. We and and what you're fighting is what did what October seventh. So this is. I really want to emphasize this too, having responded after 9-11, right? I jumped into combat in 2003. Again, forget the politics of it. I, I, I was in the military when 9-11 happened. It doesn't mean that when I went to war, all my ideals of, of the rules of war or anything, I was just seeking vengeance for what they did to us. That's not the way it works. That's not what the IDF soldier in Gaza right now is thinking. Like, I just want to kill somebody. Uh, I want revenge for October 7th. No, that's not what a professional, moral, ethical force or soldier does. And there's lots of things in place to make sure that even when you have those type of people in your military, which we've experienced them, right? That rogue soldier that just, I'm here to kill. Like How we we deal with that within our professional system, that's what the IDF soldier is experiencing. He is doing what he's told to do, but under this immense threat where and this is the last thing uh, in, in the urban environment because there are right you're right wolf Brewster's not there but there's their cell phones are there uh mm-hmm. every action could have a strategic consequence right this is the the explosion that happens next to a hospital in a parking lot and the world runs with it to where it's having geopolitical impacts on you know 
every element of, of Israel's right to defend itself and the use of force. John, um, I think that's a really vivid way of describing it, especially the idea of the rockets going over your head, hitting your house while you're going in. And I'm going to ask you to, you know, do a difficult thing, which is to flip with something you do as a professional, flip the table and see it from the enemy side of things. Right. But also, again, a very simple question that doesn't seem to be um, pulled out enough. And before I get to that, um, I think it's really important how you've been highlighting the professionalism of the IDF versus Hamas, the ethics, the values, the things that we know differentiate the American military from Al Qaeda, right? They have a belief and they have an ideology, but they have a level of military discipline from the top all the way down that says, for example, we won't commit war crimes. We won't rape people. We won't pillage, right? That's absolutely essential as a differentiator uh, on the battlefield, ethically, but on the global stage too, when you try to evaluate like, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? You got a group of people here who are at least trying to do this hard thing by the rules and a group of other people who are intentionally breaking the rules because they think it'll further their extremist objectives. But let me ask you a simple question. Are you surprised there aren't more IDF casualties? Because it feels like, you know, when, when everybody predicted Kiev is going to fall, the Russians are going to roll, Ukraine's going to topple. Um, I think we were all expecting, you know, tremendous loss on all sides. We've seen obviously tremendous loss on October 7th. That was a, a massacre. We've covered that with Ellie on the show and others. Uh, I don't think the scope of that is fully understood. Uh, there's obviously civilian casualties happening in Gaza, but I think I, many of us would have expected, okay, you're going to have a lot of IDF body bags coming back and you're going to see a lot of dead Hamas soldiers. Is, is, is it, is it being kept a lid? Is there a lid on it now in that like that might be coming or is there a scenario where this might be more surgical than most people predicted and the casualties might actually be lower militarily on, on at least the IDF side, maybe even on both sides? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. And as a, so as a military analyst, I have to go in even to answer this question with usually I, I'll take the word of IDF, not unconditionally, over Hamas, a vile terrorist organization who committed one of the greatest atrocities of modern history on October 7th. Uh, although Russia you know, is in close, you know, is, there's a race here, I'm, but it's it's not trivial. Uh, I am, as a student of urban warfare, have been studying urban warfare across the history of time, from ancient warfare to our most recent battles, to even when the U.S. supported, like in um, the, which everybody likes to use because it is one of the biggest, Second Battle of Fallujah in 2004. I am very, very surprised at the low, although every one of them is a, is a, is you know if it's blood and treasure right um the low casualties of the idf in this operation into a dense urban area who's had 20 years to prepare for the defense not 20 if not longer right so even the last operations in the gaza were very limited in in scope and depth and where they went like this they haven't been to the center of Gaza City since they left in 2005. I mean, it's it. I expected huge number of losses, and I think the IDF did as well. But the way they approached it in their operational campaign, and the fact that they went around the defenses, um, and I teach a course in California for the only one in the world for division and brigade staffs on how you plan an operation. Right, you can lose a battle not from fighting it, but from how you planned it uh, and, and the assumptions you build into it. So the fact that the IDF have lost you know, around 70 soldiers at this point is incredible uh, in this level of density of combat and, and 
the close fighting that they have actually done. But there's some very uniqueness to the way that the IDF are uh, trained, manned, and equipped for this very type of fight. Even in that consideration, I just thought they would have hundreds of casualties at this point. Is it is it possible, John? You know, I think that in many ways the Russian military was kind of a paper tiger, right? And yeah. and and that was revealed when it ran against the anvil that is Ukraine. Um, Hamas is a is a different kind of beast, especially because of its symbolic value to you know people who envision themselves as freedom fighters converging from around the world. And I still think that's a threat we may see manifest over a time. Someone who's in North Africa who says, "I'm going to Israel." It takes them weeks to plan and get there. I think that's going to be a new normal for the for that region and maybe for Europe and other places too. But is it possible that Hamas was also Kind of a military paper target, and maybe they're not. Uh, they're not a t- t- paper tiger. They're not as strong. They're not as fierce. They're not as well trained, and they kind of, you know, you know, blew blew their shot on 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 October seventh. And maybe that's the capacity they've got. And, and this could roll pretty quickly, and IDF could be could be you know in in hold of that uh, territory faster than many might have predicted. So yes and no. So yes, I think um, analysts. Kind of like they did with Russia, although, again, there's reasons that it happened. Nobody thought that the entire Ukrainian population would resist, right? On paper, the, the, the Russia should have taken Ukraine in 72 hours. And it was uh, – I've done some presentations. I'm not saying it wasn't close, uh, but there are reasons why it didn't happen um, in, in, a lot, in like the Battle of Kiev, which is the strategic target. So the fact that Hamas, uh, the, the estimates of thirty to 50,000 fighters, uh, hardened fighters – yeah, you know, worry puts all your ideals to a test. But I, I think I've been surprised that there, there are reasons again, if, all the way back to Gaddafi's fall in Libya, to the the Israel approach to containment of Gaza's threat, and the fact that they've launched twelve thousand plus rockets is a surprise to me. I didn't think they had that arsenal of it. Uh, the fact that they didn't resist this, the the penetrations that have happened so far. So yes. Uh, I was surprised at the weakness of Hamas to even form any type of defense. Yes, they built years of of tunnels, but they seem to not think this is a, you know what did you think would happen in response to October seventh? And I do think that again, this was a test of whether the other people and the key stakeholders they wanted to join their fight, like Hezbollah, like other groups said, hey, you're on your own, buddy. Uh, mm. And that left them to okay, put your plan to the test. And the fact that I, you know, even there are different forms of defenses, right, uh, that has been put to the test. And you can't argue that Hamas is just sitting in a tunnel, although many are. Like, I do believe there are thousands of Hamas fighters sitting in tunnels hoping for a moment to pop up and try to kill some IDF soldiers. But that won't lead to a, a strategic victory or a goal or anything. Uh, I think they overcalculated the second and third order effects of the responses of the IDF. But um, so, yes, I'm, I'm very... Paper Tiger and their ability to resist the IDF's invasion of their land. But there were, they did think, you know, strategically, they wanted the deaths of civilians. And they've said that. That's not my interpretation. They have publicly said that right. the death of their, the, the Gazans the, in Gaza is their goal so that the international community would stop the IDF or other people would join and cause a regional conflict, which again, politically would stop the idea. And their strategy at times from even when all that failed has, so the you know, fighting strategy, they ain't got it, right? They, they've shown, they've been weighed, they've been measured, and they ain't showing it. 
uh, IDF is rapidly taking terrain. But I think this is the the what I think is missed on people too is that the Israel has followed every step of the international humanitarian law to include lots that I've been a part of, which are protocols, um, customary laws, things like that. In fighting this, you have to do like you have to give time to get civilians out. Not like and again in comparison to Russia, Russian invaded Kiev, a three million. Didn't give any warning, didn't, uh, and just started raining down on military targets, but and and, and mil- civilian targets, but gave no warning to civilians to evacuate. Um, even in that, but this this war, uh, Paul, I think is the greatest test of the Western way of warfare. That it doesn't matter what you do; it's the perception of what you're doing that leads to your international community support which you need in order to even to defend yourself right like you said nobody's going to tell the u.s not to respond to 9 11 uh and then take take iraq off the conversation but it still mattered how we responded one you can't even lose yourself but this war is the greatest test of the western way of warfare the liberal dilemma as in yes i can tell you for as a student of all of this, that Israel has followed every law of war, but then everybody's like, well, what about the other civilian casualties? I'm like, if you think, as in we, the world, think that there's a bloodless war, that you could achieve these goals, that there's an alternative to destroying Hamas, I'm telling you there's not. And I'm telling you that, like you said, Israel has shown a lot of restraint. So in could Hamas's strategy of allow you know, forcing as many people to be of their civilians to die and then using the information domain to spread that much like the U S forces were defeated. And I I can say that at the first battle of Fallujah, because of this, because of this phenomena of the perception of the use of force that causes such a impact to the strategic political environment that you have to stop. I don't care what you're doing. Just stop. That's what Hamas was, is still hoping for. And sometimes of this battle have, have hit a kind of a peak as in, that pressure is building in the United States and in the UK and other places like that pressure, that the fact that we rely on the ignorance of populations on how wars are fought around, even five years ago, like you weren't paying attention five years ago when battles were happening in Raqqa, Aleppo, all these places, but fine. Okay. You're, you're paying attention now, which it's, it's so it is the greatest test of the Western way of warfare that we've ever seen in military history. And it's going to have impacts if it's that it doesn't matter what you do. It's the perception of what you do and how you deal with that that are going to ripple across time. And and on multiple fronts and potentially a third front with Taiwan and other okay. fronts like domestically here. And I want to get to that in a second. But I think I think I assume that Hamas's overall strategy is a giant public relations baited ambush. Right. It's a baited ambush, but politically. Right. They want you to come in, hit too hard. And they want what's happening now where some Democrats in Washington are saying, hey, maybe we need to reevaluate our unequivocal support for Israel. Like that is the long game that Hamas is playing. And the difficulty for for Israel is to not take that ambush. Right. Don't come in too hard. Don't lose the PR war. Continue to take the higher ground, even though it hurts. Right. And that's the same thing that Ukraine's doing. and, And it will be the test over time as to whether or not it works. But a test here at home, and John, I, I want to wrap it up with this question because I think it's really important. Tonight, I'm going to NBC and Rockefeller Center, and they're going to be lighting the tree, and there's going to be protests, and there's going to be a massive NYPD presence, 
in an urban environment. And I live in New York City. I travel around the country, as I know you do. And there's an urban environment here in America that maybe is largely driven by intelligence and police. But there are also uh, military assets that we don't see. Uh, there are other components that are way below the radar that most Americans don't even understand. But I continue to see the threat level uh, in a place like New York, especially right now, increase. Um, and the demands on all of these factors, on our police, on our civilians, on our on our personal restraint, not to punch up someone you disagree with, right? And, and, and the true test of our systems of free speech. Can you talk from, 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 a, from a tactical perspective, from your expert perspective, what's the threat level in America this Christmas, right? This holiday, we're going to the mall, you know, your, your, your kids are obviously worried about school shootings still, that's a factor. But this, this rub between lots of soft targets, like a giant tree lighting at Rockefeller Center, uh, a, 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 a real sense of edge, like the way everyone responded to this vehicle crash at the border in Canada and Niagara Falls, um, and protests that seem to be increasing in numbers and volume and potentially violence. How do you assess that threat level for the next couple of months here in the U.S.? I mean, I think it's extremely high um, based on the fact that so many can be influenced by the world without actually understanding what's going on. And I think that's one of the phenomenons we've seen lately across college campuses and in cities across the United States, right? Massive formations of people that are just dumb. Um, and, and that can lead to violence because there are agitators in there who actually want that, right? That's a tactic, right? That's, you know, ancient from Russian um, active measures to anybody who wants to see this and enjoys seeing um, domestic problems like this, where um, massive formations of just dumb people who are intermixed with real people that want to do harm um, to include on the people doing a protest. I think it's a, it's it's definitely at a peak. I mean, yes, you get the you get the security you pay for. Uh, you get uh, the fact that, yeah, you can criticize everything that's ever been done by the U.S. domestically, but there hasn't been another 9-11. So there actually has been, especially in New York City, just thousands of good Americans working and walking the path every day to protect uh, every citizen, no matter what they're they're saying, you know, what are, you know, what they think. That's why we stand the stand the wall. That's why we do it. Uh, but there is this, I think, a very large threat um, locally and, and across the United States because of our perceptions of the, of the world and the fact that you can mobilize people so rapidly and overwhelm like, like the people that you and I know drastically. But there has to be a limit, right? So one of the ways to combat that is that, yeah, you got free speech and you got the right to protest, but there are limits to what cities will allow um, because of the what the mass casualty events, right? So this is, you and I have walked this world. It's like, you can't stop every dummy. Uh, you can't stop every attack. You have to prevent mass casualty events. Uh, and then you, there's ways you do that through layered defensive systems and layered uh, on-call, you know, the tens of thousands of New York police personnel that don't get to celebrate their family holidays because they're on watch, they're on guard. And as these threats I think we're at a high threat right now, unfortunately, because of stupidity of uh, you know a crisis in education, a crisis in parenting, to where people can watch something on the news and believe whatever disinformation agent there is out there on TikTok or whatever. Uh, so I really feel for all those uh, people who are trying to defend uh, and, and and all the the criticism they take while they're standing guard. So I'll be in New York City very soon as well, and uh, I know it's. 
because of this agitation of what people perceive as the the underdogs of the world perceive and they don't even they're they're protesting <laughs> literally it it I mean, I, I know we're under a high threat. I think we're at a greater threat on who we are as Americans, where we're, how we process information, who we mm-hmm. who we back uh, is is literally a crisis in our own society on what we believe, and then what we do about what we believe leads to this. You know, my family's not safe on the streets because you're a dumbass. Uh, sorry for the, the terminology, but it's a fact. Uh, so yeah, in New York City, you have to prevent mass casualty events. Uh, and we've seen that you know just a few people with really bad intentions can use the stupidity of others to cause those events. Well, I hope when you're here, uh, Mayor Eric Adams brings you in for a briefing, um, because the, the thing that we are definitely short on right now that I am reminded of daily is is our lack of of strong, experienced leadership, especially. You know, people who have military police experience who can understand these types of dynamic situations. It could be, you know, a domestic extremist or it could be a protester. Um, you know, we're seeing cuts in the police force here in New York in the midst of all of that. Right. But I, I think, you know, what our enemies are celebrating most is the division internally. And, and we have a crisis of, of leadership compounded by the increase of threats. But you've been a real voice of reason, man, and a voice of stability. And I'm so grateful for all the information you're putting out. Uh, I hope you can come back next time because I want to talk to you about fatherhood and and, uh, you've got some family values that I saw on a t-shirt that I talked to my wife about. Everyone should follow John on all the social media platforms. Check out his books. Uh, Be sure to definitely follow him on on all social media platforms. Uh, He's been a real voice of clarity and and, uh, an experience at a time when we really need it, John. So thank you for all the leadership that you have and all the work you do. I hope you and your family have a good holiday despite all this madness. And I hope you'll come back again soon, sir. Hey, thanks, brother. And thanks for that mention. I am a values-based person and I think everybody in the world should be. What you stand for matters and what you won't allow. And and I I try to walk that walk in my own family, but not only in my career. So I really appreciate you, brother. I, I, I respect all that you do. Thank you, my friend. Happy holidays to be continued and stay vigilant. Same. All right, my deepest thanks to John Spencer. If you've never checked him out, follow him on all the social media platforms. Go to johnspenceronline.com. I'll also link to it in the show notes, but check him out. He is a voice of reason. He is a voice of experience, a voice of integrity, and a voice that can help you stay vigilant. And he's also a helper. Always look for the helpers. There, were, there will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. If you look for the helpers you'll know that there's hope. All right, holiday season is helper season, and I want to thank all of you for supporting this content, supporting this show, supporting our work. If you're not already a member of our Patreon community, please become one. Join the mighty elves of Righteous Media. Go to independentamericans.us and join our Patreon community. Chip in a couple bucks, and you can help us keep bringing holiday content to all the good little boys and girls around the world.
If for some reason you're not yet subscribed, please do me a holiday solid and hit that subscribe button now on whatever platform you're listening to. If you don't know, it's always available at independentamericans.us, on Spotify, on YouTube, and everywhere you find your podcasts. You can also check out our merch. If you need some holiday ideas that are a bit different and super comfortable, check out the Independent Americans merch at independentamericans.us. Made in America, made for you, and made just in time for the holidays. Be sure to check me out on News Nation every Wednesday with Colin McShane at 3 o'clock Eastern, where I'll continue to break down news and national security and politics. And every Wednesday and a lot of Fridays on MSNBC's Deadline White House. Our friend Nicole Wallace is out for maternity leave for three months. She's had a baby. Congratulations to Nicole and welcome to the world, Izzy. But she's out for three months and guest host Alicia Mendez will be chopping it up with me every Wednesday or Friday, sometimes both. Check my social media and your local listings for the latest. But I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you're cranked up for the holidays. And I hope I can help you keep it real this holiday season and remind you what's most important, what's most urgent, and what's next, even as the holidays continue here in America. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with John Spencer. Be sure to check out all the archives for previous conversations with Chuck D and many more. And stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. And we're all in this together, especially now and especially this holiday season in Ukraine, in Gaza, all around the world, and especially here in America. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Hamas, down with Putin, Slava Ukraine, and stay vigilant, America. Media.